enga iwi, enga mana, enga motu, tena koto, tena koto, tena koto katoa. Thank you very much for coming. Um, it's lovely to see so many people here. Let's go back in time. It's January 1946. Around 150 emerging musicians and tutors from around the country gather at St Peter's School, Cambridge, where the students perform a range of orchestral, chamber and choral music. There are also piano and composition groups. The heady 10-day summer school will be held annually for around 30 years, providing an environment where many musicians bridge the gap between student and professional involvement. At that first Cambridge summer school, Douglas Lawburn gives a talk, The Search for Tradition, in which he pleads for the necessity for us in Aotearoa to have, quote, a music of our own, a living tradition of music created in this country, a music that will satisfy those parts of our being that cannot be satisfied by the music of other nations. This idea came to him one night when he was travelling on the Limited, the overnight train between Auckland and Wellington. Hanging out the carriage door gazing at Ruapehu in the full moonlight, he realised that, at that moment, the world in which Mozart lived was about as remote as the moon and in no way related to any experience of his. Later in the same talk, he talks about how our environment is shaping our characteristic rhythms of living. Everything about us, the patterns of our landscape and sea coasts, the changing of our seasons and the flow of light and colour about us all show patterns of movement or characteristic rhythms. We have an enormous potential of characteristic rhythm in this environment about us, provided we can become sufficiently aware of it to be able to make it articulate and sound. And he talks about Maori music, saying... My impressions are that in its pure state, as part of Polynesian culture, it's about as foreign to our own cultural sources as, say, Javanese or Siberian folk music, that as we live here generation after generation, the circumstances that shape us may fuse some of this Polynesian quality into our own ethos. But the attempts to use it for the founding of a national music here have been based more on a wish to practice 19th century theories than on any ability to fuse a Polynesian culture with our own. That was Douglas in 1946. 20 years later, he has become involved in the new electronic medium, although he struggled with the new technology, which did not come naturally to him. But in that medium, he was eventually able very effectively to explore that characteristic rhythm he perceived and indeed did make it articulate in sound. In another talk, A Search for Language, given at the University of Otago in 1969, he says, I begin to enter into my own total heritage of sound, meaning all sounds, and not just the narrow segment of them, traditional, imported, that we've long regarded as being music. Jack Body told me that one day, towards the end of his life, Douglas heard the music of Hirani Melbourne and Richard Nunn's and the sounds of Taonga Puro on Rattle CD, Teku Tufe, and said in tears, at last, this is the music I've been waiting all my life to hear, or words to that effect. I'd like to play a short excerpt 
two um, excerpts run together from Douglas's The Return, an early electroacoustic piece from 1965, inspired by Alastair Campbell's haunting and mysterious poem of the same name. To me, the poem and the music inhabit the same uneasy world evoked by the paintings of Bill Hammond. history of Tongapuro, which translates as treasures of sound or tools of sound or singing treasures. In pre-European times, they were not musical instruments, as we tend to regard them today, but were made for practical use. Made of wood, stone, shell, gourd, punamu, harakeke or bone, they were blown as flutes or trumpets or were shaken, beaten or swung. They are the children of the Atua, the gods. The instruments of wood are the descendants of Tane. Those of shell are of Tangaroa, swung instruments of Tafere Matea. Hine Putehue is the goddess of gourd instruments and Hine Rokataori of flute music. The Tonga had specific functions. Some were for signalling, 
Some were trumpets for war. Some were to assist communication with the Atua. Some were used to attract birds for food or for healing, for accompanying sacred chants, or purely for entertainment, accompanying singing and dancing. Some were public, some were intimate. Some were tapu, some were found objects, tapped stones or fashioned out of leaves. Some tonga produced a single pitch, or in the case of trumpets, a pitch and their harmonics, but most others had small ranges, usually no more than a minor third, similar to the vocal range of the chants and wayata, and indeed also to the range of birds. They held a whole world of sound and meaning within them, and today they bring us something of the sound world of our past. When the missionaries arrived here in the early 19th century, they understood the spiritual significance of the sounds of the Tonga to Māori and ordered them destroyed. They were replaced with Western flutes and bugles. The old playing traditions were lost, fragmented, with Tarangihiro, Sir Peter Buck, declaring in the 1920s that their voices were forever mute. This may well have been because the ethnologists and Western musicians couldn't make the instruments sound in a way meaningful to them, as the playing techniques and concepts of music were so very different. From the 1970s, there was a renaissance and resurgence of things Māori, awareness of the effects of colonisation and of the two differing versions of the treaty, the beginnings of the reclamation of the language beaten out of school children to enforce spoken English, the recognition of techniques and development in the world of traditional crafts, the emergence of writers and painters drawing on their rediscovered traditions, and so on. And this was true of the Tangapuro as well. Three men came together at a hui devoted to Tangapuro in 1984. Richard Nunns was a school teacher, an improvising musician, who played flute and trumpet and was fascinated by the Tangapuro. Hirani Melbourne, a musician, singer, composer, fluent speaker and holder of knowledge of his Tuhoi heritage, and Brian Flintoff, who I'm delighted is here tonight, uh, who is a master carver. The three of them, with their complementary skills, became the nucleus of a group of makers and players, Homanu, which translates as the breath of birds. Richard and Hirini travelled to Marae up and down the country, taking the voices of the instruments back to the people and picking up fragments of information from the memories of Kaumatua and Kuya. Of course, so much knowledge has been lost since the missionaries declared the Tonga the work of the devil. But the time that elapsed between the attempted destruction of Māori Tanga in the 19th century and the revival in the late 20th was much shorter than that say, of the First Nations of America. So the recovery, though fragmentary and with many gaps, has been more complete than elsewhere. I first came across this new sound world in the 90s on the occasion of the opening of Victoria University's new music building, when Richard Nunn's dedicated to Kowawao uh, that had been gifted to the school. And shortly after that, I heard Hirini and Richard present a workshop in Ohakune. I was very moved by hearing these sounds. I had some knowledge of the Tonga as 30 years earlier, when a master's student at Sydney University, I had studied ethnomusicology with Peter Sculthorpe, 
who had little knowledge of academic musicology, but a great enthusiasm for the sounds of gamelan and no. I used this time to investigate with far more enthusiasm than academic rigour the instruments of Southeast Asia, the Pacific and Aotearoa. At that time, in the 1960s, there was precious little recorded music available. And of course, course, I knew the instruments of Māori were forever mute because Te Rangihiroa had said so. Anyway, Richard and Hirani's presentation touched me very deeply. And sometime shortly after that, in the early 1990s, there was a composing women's festival in Melbourne. I was teaching in Sydney at the time, and I joined a group of New Zealand women who had come to Melbourne for the occasion. Among others, Elizabeth Kerr, Helen Fisher, Eve de Castro-Robinson, Jenny McLeod, Kerry Carr, and Tungia Baker. And one evening, Tungia told me a story she had written about a waka, a kofi tree who lived in the hills, and their mutual friend Tui, who carried messages between them. Then one day there was a big storm which changed everything. Actually, Tungia's original story involved a tsunami rather than a storm. But as the story was on one level for children, she decided to change it to something rather less terrifying. After Tungia told me the story, I woke in the middle of the night and thought, that's a story in the tradition of the old teaching stories and it could be used, you know, told using a cello as the voice of waka. The canoe, like a cello, is hollow and made of wood, and the imaginative skill of New Zealand improvising pianist Judy Bailey, who was also at that festival, could suggest the flowers and foliage of Kofi, and Richard Stonga could comment on events as Tungia told the story. It had never occurred to me to use the Tonga in composition till that point, but Tungia was happy to see it happen, and somehow it all came together, on CD rather than in performance, as Ipu. In this excerpt, at the height of the storm, Walker is swept up into the hills by the wave and sees with dismay Kofi being carried down to, as the water retreats. This is followed by calm and a lament. Engari e kore e tai a te pupuri i tōna here ki a mau ki te pauhutu kowa. Te motunga o ngā mahi a tangaroa me tāwhirimātea, kwa tātū noa a waka ki te take o kōwhai. Engari poto noiho nei te wā, ka haria a kōwhai e te ngaru ki te taha o te moana.
I've been wondering when Taungapuro and Western concepts of music were first combined. In 1980, at the time of the protest over plans to build an aluminium smelter in Aramoana at the mouth of Otago Harbour, Chris Cree Brown was Mozart Fellow, and there was a group exhibition in the Hocken Library by a number of leading activists, the likes of Silla McQueen, Ralph Holtere, and Marilyn Webb. The late Māori Regodor was a kaitahu kaumatua, who at the time was director of the National Cancer Research Laboratory there, and he borrowed a kawawao from the Dunedin Museum and lent it to Chris, saying, this must stay in good hands, as otherwise I will become ill. Chris devised a piece in which the haunting sounds of the kawawao and the rippling water at Aramoana were recorded on tape, and about 15 objects made of aluminium watering cans, saucepans and so on, were hung and were struck with beaters by visitors to the exhibition. Subsequently, Chris was confronted by an angry young Māori guy who said he had no right to use the koawao in this way. Although Chris had been given permission and encouragement by Marire, he says, chastened, I have been very reticent to use any ethnic instruments since, especially anything within Māoridom. And unfortunately, the tape disintegrated long ago before Chris got around to digitising it. An unfortunate experience, but not an uncommon one. But this may have been the first use of Taungapuro in a modern setting and should be recognised as such. I saw our piece Ipu primarily as storytelling, and a couple of years later, I was writing an opera with a text by Christine Johnson to celebrate Dunedin's sesquicentenary. Our opera, called Outrageous Fortune, had one plotline based on fact, which conflated two stories, one involving Māori finding gold on a rock in a flooded river, and another where Māori rescued Chinese miners terrorised by claim jumpers by performing a haka and scaring them off. I translated some of the text into Te Reo Māori, and we introduced Richard playing Tonga Puro and Tungia Baker as a kaikaranga alongside the operatic Māori singers Deborah Waikapohe, Te Oti Rakena and Robert Widemu to amplify and enhance the Māori aspects of the libretto. Shortly after that, Richard asked me if I'd write a piece for Alexa Steele to play with him at the Atlanta Flute Convention. One day in Nelson, he had shown me a fern growing at the base of a tree and said, this is the hair of Hine Raukatare. I'd like you to write a piece about her. So for the first time, I had to think about how to write for flute and taongapuro as equal partners in a piece of chamber music. Actually, in retrospect, I don't think I did think about it very much. It was a piece I had to write in Sydney to a very tight deadline. I just had to sit down and do it. But there are lots of things to consider, such as notation versus improvisation, the small ranges of the instruments which can play microtones and are not tempered to Western scales, Western tonality, the individuality and variation of pitch and quality of tongue of the same name, the different playing styles of performers, the very quiet sounds of some instruments, the fact that some tonga are often reluctant to speak, and so on. And there are a lot of taonga to choose from. Initially, there weren't so many, and the first pieces I wrote used only the instruments Hirani and Richard had featured on their CD. 
But as time went on, there was more research into the Taonga and more information was gathered and other voices came back into being. For instance, I remember Richard being very excited when he received a pu motomoto from Brian Flintoff and was wondering how it would speak when he tried to play it. Hirini had met a kaumatua from Waikare Moana who had described the form and purpose of the instrument. It's a long vertical flute with a notch at the top and a single, single hole near the lower end. <coughs> it has a very quiet, breathy voice. Hirini later took the instrument back to play to the kaumatua who said the sound was right and altered one or two detailed in the construction. The pu motomoto was traditionally played into the fontanelle of a baby to impart wiata and tribal knowledge into the child's subconscious. Richard played it several times over the belly of a young woman who was hapu and after the child was born, whenever she heard the sound of the instrument, she immediately settled down and listened intently. Um, I'm just going to ask Al to demonstrate the sound of the pu motomoto. Another example of the emergence of a new Tonga, when we were recording Ipu and Nelson, Tungia Baker gave Richard a rattle she had made out of dried harakeke and muka, muka being the fibre remaining after a flax leaf has been scraped. She had replicated a rattle she had seen in the Otaki Museum and another sound came back into the modern world. At the end of this session, Bridget Douglas and Alastair Fraser will play Hinera Kataori the piece Richard wanted for the Atlanta Flute Convention, but I'll talk about it now. In short, Hina Rakatari is the goddess of music and entertainment. She is also the case moth that you often see hanging from shrubs. The female case moth lives her whole life in the case and attracts males by singing in a pure, quiet tone. The mates come, impregnate her, die and remain in the case to feed her young. The case moth is also a favourite food of the kokako, who by feeding on her attains his wonderful voice by amplifying her pure, quiet sound. <coughs> Hine Rakatauri, the goddess of flute music, is embodied in the Pultorino, which is shaped like a case moth. The instrument is unique to Aotearoa, and can be played with a loud trumpet, kokiri, or male voice, and a quiet flute, waiata, or female voice. The differences between the ranges of the different voices depends on the bore of the instrument, and often there's a third or spirit voice, or even fourth. <laughs>
The main instruments of this piece are Putorino. Two of Aliste's instruments are of Nico, one of Akeake. When I wrote the piece for Richard initially, his were made of albatross bone, matai and Maori wood. Because of the different tone qualities of the materials, the realisations of the piece are subtly varied. There are other tonga as well, a karangamanu or bird caller which opens the piece in a duet with piccolo, tapped resonant sticks which accompany a flute solo reminiscent of dramatic storytelling. A pūrerehua, which translates as an attractive or attracting sound, suggests the moth attracted to hine raukatauri. By the nature of the Tongapuro, the music for them is basically going to be fairly slow, so any faster-moving sound has to be carried in the Western instruments. And one basic function of the sections written for Western instruments, apart from the music itself, is to move from one tonal centre that will support a specific Tonga to another. In Hine Rakatauri and subsequent pieces, I tried to evoke a pre-European contact world, something without reference to common European practice. Frequently, I use low-sustained fifths and parallel harmonies. I came to that really by observing the importance of the third overtone, which sounds at the fifth. In some Maori music, I remember hearing Nati Rangi men chanting, where the fifth was almost as dominant as the basic pitch, dancing above it, a sound to marvel at. I found it also in some wind instruments, hearing and accidentally transcribing the same phrase at two separate times, a fifth apart. And in my writing, I extended that idea to include the fifth harmonic as well, which adds a major third above the basic tone. Richard is an improvising musician. He doesn't like working from, from a score and performs better when not reading one. So his part is basically a list of instruments, maybe an indication of mood, and he works off eye contact with the other musicians. And I encourage the other instrumentalists to improvise as well, so that though the structure doesn't change, some of the detail will vary from performance to performance. I started writing like that many years ago when I realised that I wanted to relieve intense concentrated material with something much freer, both for the performers and the listeners' sake. In these partly improvised pieces, my aim is to achieve a performance where the listener isn't aware of what is improvised and what is notated. Around 2003, there were a couple of memorable wānanga at Ohinemutu and Whakareware, organised by Ngāwara Gordon, who brought together instrument makers and players with a few classical musicians. One event during that Ohinemutu wānanga I'll never forget was a trip before dawn to the top of Tarawira, where 30-plus musicians performed a 40-minute improvisation on Taongapuro to the memory of Hirini Melbourne as the sun rose. Ngawara and Richard wanted a piece for Richard and the visiting Canadian bassoonist George Tukaman to perform during the Wananga. I wanted to draw on a local story and worked with Araho Yates-Smith on the story of her tūpuna, Hine Te Kākara, who was either the wife or daughter of Ihenga, an early explorer of the Lakes region. When Ihenga returned from a hunting trip, he found the murdered body of Hinete Kakara in Lake Rotorua at Muruika, 
where a settlement was named for her, Ohenemutu, meaning the end of the woman. Ihenga walked there by the lake and sang an angry lament. This excerpt is a later version that adds flute and cello to the mix. It comes from the opening where Aroha summons the spirit of her ancestor from the lake. Writing this piece was a true collaboration. After talking with Aroha, I devised the shape of the piece, chose the taonga, and wrote the bassoon part for George to learn. Then in rehearsal, George and Richard worked on the improvised section while Aroha listened. Shortly before the performance, Aroha added her chants, which gave much greater depth to the piece. So my piece encloses her chants which deal with different sections of the life of Hine Te Kākara and Ihenga. The performance in the Farenui at Ohinemutu, about a hundred metres from where Hine Te Kākara was killed and Ihenga sang his lament, was electrifying. There were other pieces involving Taungapuro, three I wrote for the New Zealand String Quartet. The first was Hine Putehue, who is the Atua of Peace, The Good is Her Attribute, as it serves as a vessel to hold food or water. I decided to use stringed instruments with the gourds, as with both gourds and violins, it's the air vibrating in an enclosed space crafted from plant material that produces the sound. I also used a coup, a bow which uses the mouth as a resonating chamber, while the taut strings made from supplejack is tapped rhythmically. These pieces were followed a few years later by Puhakikiterangi, Spouting to the Skies, which is based on instruments made of whalebone, 
with other instruments like the karangamanu, the bird caller, representing the sounds a whale would hear from land, and the torua or albatross, which the whale would surely encounter at sea. When I first started working with Richard, people would often ask how I felt about writing music that would have a short life, as, particularly after Hirini's death, we weren't sure whether the revival would continue or diminish and disappear. I wasn't that phased to have even once the possibility and privilege of writing for these new sounds that connected to my heritage was enough. Richard no longer plays because of ill health, but 20 years on, there are a number of highly skilled players, Horomono Horo, Alastair Fraser, Rob Thorne, James Webster, Ariana Tico, to name a few, with their individual backgrounds, sets of instruments and playing techniques. They work across a variety of genres and perform nationally and abroad. And a growing number of composers are working together with them, discovering new ways to work together, which is very exciting. For me, working with the Taonga has influenced my writing. Every few years, I believe, a composer's style of writing changes. I began writing in Auckland, music described as somewhere between Schoenberg and Bartok. In Britain, I worked with serial processes until I found my own way of controlling material through devising structures based on mensuration canons evolved from their Renaissance predecessors, which spanned a piece, leading to a complicated-looking framework of fixed pictures. But that is just a framework. The skill comes in joining and entwining and elaborating and scoring these points of sound. Then I began introducing elements of free rhythm or controlled improvisation at key points in the structure, so that the structure would always be the same, but the detail always varied. Teaching at the Conservatorium in Sydney brought me back to in-depth analysis of the music of the Renaissance of Debussy and Mozart, as well as the leading 20th century icons. And after a brush with breast cancer, my writing moved away from the strictures I'd put on it in the 70s and 80s. Jenny McLeod's chromatic maps suggested new paths as well. When I started working with the Taonga Puro, my style changed again after my attempts to find a way of writing something that would suggest sounds of pre-European Aotearoa. Of course they didn't, but never mind. I tend to use melodies with a very limited range, parallel harmonies, bringing something of my codifying of that pre-European sound world into my other work. Then there's subject matter. I suppose now it's mainly storytelling in some form or other that interests me. We have so many stories left to tell. The pieces I wrote with Fleur Adcock told the stories of women. Hotspur, in which Henry Percy and the Battle of Otterburn were seen through the eyes of his wife, and Eleanor of Akaten were both written while I was living in Europe. The other three, written when I was back on this side of the world, focused on Catherine Mansfield. Robin Hyde and Alice, who was Fleur's great-aunt. That focus followed into the Taongapuro pieces. Following Hine Rakatori, two other pieces told of Atua Wahine. Hine Te Iwa Iwa, the Atua of pregnancy and birth, harvesting and weaving, and Hine Putehue, the Atua of peace. The latter was also a response to George Bush's sabre-rattling State of the Union address in the aftermath of 9-11,
while Puhake Kitarangi was a response to Japan breaking the moratorium on whaling a decade ago. Personally, I find it hard to use the Taonga Puro as abstract sound, although others do it very effectively. So far, I've needed to use the instruments in some way associated with their original use. They need to have plenty of spiritual space around them to sound. They are slow and sometimes reluctant to speak, have the unique, often fragile voices, and need to be seen as equal partners shaping the direction of the piece. They are a sonic link to the past of our country. They must not be colonised or regimented by Western music. Working with the Tonga and Te Reo Māori has taken me to some wonderful places and given me, and I hope others, some amazing experiences. I've learned so much and met so many wonderful people on this journey. The last piece I wrote before Richard retired was 10 years ago, but since then, the wonderful and dedicated new wave of players have revived some of the pieces I devised for Richard, and now I'm writing again for the Tonga and the next generation of players. I talked earlier about Douglas Lilburn's search for a unique tradition that springs from Aotearoa, which he certainly established in his electroacoustic music and heard as his ideal at the end of his life in the sounds of the Tonga Puro. But composing using the Tonga is just one of the many strands that go to make up the musical fabric of Aotearoa. It's not possible to say what New Zealand music is, although some foreigners think it has to do with our perception of space, but I believe our sounds are really very different from the sounds of Germany, of New York, of Britain, or Australia, or China. We are lucky in this country to have a collegial and supportive composing community, and this is in part because of Douglas's support of us 40 years ago. There are no towering dictatorial figures who decree that music should be like this or like that here, and long may it remain so. In his poem, Themes, Dennis Glover asks the question, What shall we sing? sings Harry, and goes on to address satirically the themes of truthful men, of lovers, of leaders, of poets and of soldiers. Then asks again, What shall we sing? sings Harry. Sing all things sweet or harsh upon these islands in the Pacific sun, the mountains white and endlessly, and the white horses of the winter sea, sings Harry. Thank you.
Oh, mm-hmm. 